Welcome back. There was a story in the Globe and Mail recently that suggested Canada was uh, eyeing a way to try to get in to the uh, alliance known as AUKUS. Now, this is a security pact between the U.S., the U.K., and Australia. Now, these are all close allies uh, of Canada. I mean, if you want to add New Zealand into the conversation, us, New Zealand, and these three make up the five eyes, intelligence sharing alliance. So when this AUKUS alliance was first announced, it was... Uh, certainly noticed here in Canada. Like, wait a sec, where are we? Why aren't we there? Why wasn't our prime minister standing alongside the U.S. president uh, and the prime ministers uh, of uh, the U.K. and Australia? So there's still that lingering question as to why we were left out. I mean, at the time, the government said, look, it's it's no big deal, but I think it is. It, it did seem like a snub. Uh, there's a new report out looking at, I guess, A, that question of why uh, Canada was left out of the AUKUS alliance. And more to the point, though, why it's important that we get in, that there needs to be some urgency here, that maybe Canada needs to step up his game uh, to make the case to our allies that, look, it's, it's not just good for us that we're at the table, but it's good for you guys, too. Uh, the report is called Canadian Membership in AUKUS, A Time for Action. Mentioned published by the Washington-based Center for Strategic and International Studies. Joining us on the line here this afternoon is uh, one of the authors of this piece. Uh, Vincent Rigby is a senior advisor on the Americas program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's a former national security and intelligence advisor to Prime Minister Trudeau and also a visiting professor of the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University. Uh, Vincent Rigby, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. So first of all, for context here, what, what is AUKUS as we currently understand it? So AUKUS is an agreement that was originally established by the United States, Australia, United Kingdom in September of 2021. And it was announced to great fanfare, um, focused very much on basically paving the way for Australia to acquire nuclear-powered submarines. So not nuclear-armed submarines, but right. nuclear-powered submarines. And the rationale for this partnership was basically to counter threats in the Indo-Pacific region, China in particular. So that was September of 2021. Fast forward to March of 2023, the three leaders of the countries meet in San Diego and they announced details of this agreement, and in particular how Australia is eventually going to purchase nuclear-powered submarines. Uh, they'll have up to eight by late 2030s, early 2040s. They'll purchase five from the U.S. in the interim while they design and build uh, these other submarines. So it, it's quite detailed and laid out exactly how we're going to move in that direction. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there's a second pillar, and it's not just about nuclear-powered submarines, but it's also about defense, technological cooperation in general. So the ability for the three countries to share expertise in artificial intelligence, quantum systems, cyber, hypersonic missiles, uh, subsurface capabilities, et cetera, et cetera. So this is where it gets interesting about whether Canada should join or not. Is it all about nuclear-powered submarines, or is it actually something much broader that Canada could derive some serious benefits from? 
Well, we've certainly heard the former emphasized. You know, the, I, I think this has maybe been downplayed, Canada's exclusion, that is, uh, by the argument that, look, you know, we, we're not really interested in nuclear-powered submarines. This this doesn't really concern us. So it's not a big deal that we were excluded. I mean, first of all, it does appear as though we were excluded. But what about that argument? Well, that's the problem. Uh, first of all, we don't know definitively if we were excluded or the three countries came to Canada and said, what do you think? And we said, no. I mean, there probably would be, as we said in the CSIS article, a little bit of sticker price shock because these submarines are going to cost the Australians about $250 billion U.S. So it's, it's, it's an expensive proposition. But I think the general sense is that Canada just didn't show any particular interest. Uh, we probably weren't invited. And the Minister of National Defence has stated quite bluntly that, listen, we're not interested or we weren't interested because this is about Australia acquiring nuclear-powered submarines and Canada's not interested in going that route. We do have to replace our submarines. They're very old. Um, but the government says we're not going to go a nuclear-powered submarine route. At the same time, she has said recently, um, as recently as last week, if I'm not mistaken, or earlier this week, that, listen, this second pillar about artificial intelligence, about cyber, about quantum, um, providing basically the tools for modern militaries, um, yeah, we might, we might be interested in that. And so that's where I think we'd like to, by we, I mean CSIS, where we'd like to see Canada go, and I think a lot of other commentators as well, that there's actually some space here for Canada to get involved, even if we don't want to purchase nuclear-powered submarines. Getting access to this technology would be really important, but also we have expertise in a lot of these areas. Canada is a leader globally when it comes to AI, when it comes to cyber, when it comes to quantum. So we can bring something to the table which is what we need to do. It's not a talk shop, AUKUS. You right. have to bring something to the table. Canada can do that. Well, and first of all, I guess there needs to be a willingness, right? A willingness to to bring that to the table, even just a willingness to want to be a part of it. Does it fall to Canada? Is the onus on Canada to make the pitch to, to these other three countries that, that we should be at the table? I think so. At, at the end of the day, it... it uh, the, the three countries have made clear that they're willing to talk to, to, to others. Um, New Zealand stated publicly uh, a month or two ago that they're interested. So this is the fourth member of the Five Eyes. We would be the fifth member of the Five Eyes Intelligence Partnership. So New Zealand has come right out and said that uh, we're interested. We've started discussions. We'd like to we'd like to potentially go this route. Focused again on Pillar Two. They're definitely not going to go the nuclear route, given their position on nuclear issues. Right. But, um, yeah, it's a bit of a chicken and egg. Do, do, does Canada wait to be invited or does Canada take the initiative? We suggest in, in our article, Canada should take the initiative. We've just come out with an Indo-Pacific strategy where we say that China is a, is a disruptive global power. It needs to be uh, countered. I mean, we cooperate when we can, but we also need to stand up uh, to protect our, our, our interests and, and our economic prosperity in the region. So I would suggest uh, take the bull by the horns and, and see where we can fit in here, because it's, it's important from a practical perspective in terms of getting access to technology. But it's also very important symbolically to show the allies are together and they're sending a signal to, to the Chinas and the North Koreas that, hey, we're, 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 
we're going to actually protect their interests here. Yeah. Well, and I mean, look, there's there's some politics here. I suppose there's the embarrassment of being excluded in the first place. That would be, I think, you know, dwarfed by the embarrassment of, of asking to join and, and then being rebuffed. I highly doubt that we'd be rebuffed. I mean, there's there's, there's some discussion about that. And, and I've even read some commentators in the U.S. saying that Canada should not be in, invited um, because whole issues over spending on defense and right. 2% of GDP and all the stuff that we've seen in the news recently in the comments allegedly made by the prime minister um, to other NATO leaders that we're never going to reach 2%. And so we're seen as a bit of a laggard. So why would we invite Canada to the table? Well, I, I think that the allies at the officials level will understand that Canada does have capabilities that they can actually use. And they will be very, very interested in that unified front of the five eyes allies standing together um, because that's so important. Uh, China likes nothing better than to to pick you off one by one. And so if we are solid and unified, I think that the United States would love that and would love to see Canada aboard. I think in terms of embarrassment, um, if New Zealand joins and you've got four of the five, five eyes allies uh, together on this and we're not in it, that will be embarrassing, yeah. quite frankly. Yeah, you're right about that. Uh, as you note in the report, you say Canada has much to offer AUKUS and vice versa. And this is, is kind of the interesting element you've touched on because, you know, whether it's NORAD or, or NATO, I mean, you know, these kinds of alliances definitely benefit Canada. But do these alliances benefit from, from Canada being there? And maybe that's the same question for AUKUS. Uh, is it in the interest of these other countries to, to have us there? Oh, absolutely. And I think it just reflects what I've, what I've, what I've said, that mm-hmm. um, we, we do have capabilities. And uh, I think especially in terms of cutting-edge technology and what you need in the future battle space where everything is driven by technology, so um, quantum systems for modern navigation systems, artificial intelligence, cyber, we're very, very cutting-edge. Um, the stuff that we do in NORAD can actually complement AUKUS with respect to over-the-horizon radar and countering hypersonic missiles. So, yes, we have stuff that we can offer here. Uh, And I think that for, again, the alliance um, or AUKUS, the agreement, the the countries involved, as I said earlier, they'll want to see that united front. And so Canada is an Indo-Pacific nation joining um, one more pee in the pod, so to speak, I, I think that sends up a, a really strong signal uh, to China. And the U.S. is constantly saying they want to work with allies more than ever. Mm-hmm. There has to be a united front from Western nations against a revanchist power like, like China and sticking together. And the same with respect to Russia. So, so absolutely, the, the allies will, will take that. And then what we get from it, we, we're going to get technology as well. And we're also, and we're going to get what we need to have a, a modern military, or at least a step towards that. And at the same time, I think that we'll be taken more seriously from a reputational point of view, because I think our status internationally, notwithstanding what the government is saying, that we're a responsible partner, the government may feel that we're a responsible partner, but that's not necessarily the way allies look at us. And perception's really, really important here. So if we were to join AUKUS, I think suddenly it would be, ah, okay, 
Maybe Canada's trying to get back in the game. Maybe they're actually trying to back up what they say in the Indo-Pacific strategy. This is great. So I think it'll be, it'll be you know, a win-win as, as, yeah. as the cliche goes. Well, as you say, I mean, the case is strong. There, there have been rumblings that, you know, there is interest in, in Ottawa. I think the Globe and Mail reported last week that, uh, you know, Canada has maybe even expressed uh, an interest. So where, where would you put your level of optimism here that, you know, this, this will be realized? Well, I've heard that those rumblings for a while as well, and it was nice to see that Globe and Mail article earlier this week, and where Minister announced said that, that Canada was definitely interested in some of the Pillar Two activities. Um, but let's not just talk; let's let's do it. And there is a propensity in Ottawa to say, "We're looking at this, we're looking at that," uh, but then we're very slow to move. And I think that governments in Canada, traditionally, when it comes to national security and defense, They've been very responsive, and they've waited until they're backed into a corner. I mean, we're seeing that to a certain extent on the whole foreign interference file right now. When when stuff finally gets really, really, really hot, then, yeah. then we do something. So let's not wait. And, and as we say in the CSIS article, the window of opportunity might be there, but it might not be there forever. And at a certain point, you could get uh, these countries saying, listen, Canada, we gave you the chance. Um, and you, you didn't turn around and, and do it. And then, you know, New Zealand's in, maybe a couple other countries. Maybe they're looking at Japan. I, I don't know. But uh, I, I can't predict whether the government's going to move on it. All I would say is you should move on it. You should move on it fast. Indeed. Much more at CSIS.org, the uh, other CSIS, as they say, the Center for Strategic and International <laughs> Studies. Uh, Vincent, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. Hey, welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program, friends. Rob Breckenridge with you. Uh, of course, the Calgary Flames are not a part of the NHL postseason. We're down to the uh, final eight teams uh, in the contest for the Stanley Cup. It's been an exciting uh, NHL playoff so far. I did see some some rough stuff last night between the Edmonton Oilers and the Vegas Golden Knights. I think overall we do see less in the way of fighting these days in the NHL. The role of the enforcer. It's not really part, I think, of the NHL much. Well, maybe to some extent, certainly not to the extent it previously was. And we've had some tragic stories regarding former NHL enforcers. And so is, is there anything that can help us explain that? What is the, the toll or the impact that, that years of fighting of the NHL can take as compared to anything else that NHL has got to deal with? You know, concussions, uh, other kinds of injuries. So some new research published that, that finds a disturbing trend here, that NHL enforcers with 50 or more career fights tend to die at a younger age, uh, 10 years earlier, in fact, than their NHL counterparts, more often of drug overdose and suicide. So how do we reach such a conclusion, and what, what do we take from this? What should be the implications of, of having this understanding? Well, joining us uh, to talk more about it is uh, one of the authors uh, of this uh, report. Dr. Charles Popkin is uh, an orthopedic sports medicine specialist with the Center for Shoulder, Elbow, and Sports Medicine at Columbia University and joins us on the line here this afternoon or I guess this evening where he is uh, in, in Finland with Team USA for the World Hockey Championships. Dr. Popkin, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. And it's worth noting your involvement in, in, you know, Team USA hockey and just hockey in general, because you're not coming at this just as, as an academic or, you know, from a medical perspective. You know, you're coming at this as someone who's involved in the game as, as an appreciation for the game. 
Yeah, I love the game. I'm a hockey physician. I've been involved with Team USA now going on six years. And a lot of my academic space is dedicated to uh, helping uh, ice hockey players. And, you know, this is an important issue because I think mean, if you talk to most hockey players after their career is over, I think they would say, hey, you know what? I may have some shoulder pain or some hip pain or my knee may bother me. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's a different thing when we talk about brain injury and really just hasn't been looked at. Like, what are the long-term consequences of choosing to be an enforcer or a fighter in the NHL? And frankly, the results were a bit shocking for us that, you know, versus their peers, they're dying 10 years earlier and more likely to be from suicide or drug overdose. Yeah, I mean, there's been some high-profile examples of that. So, I mean, anecdotally, you know, there's some evidence pointing in that direction. But how do you go about trying to objectively measure something like this? Yeah, I mean, I think we're just scratching the surface. You know, I think what is known is that athletes that have, you know, more concussions do have a higher suicide rate. And, you know, this study used fighting as a proxy for repetitive head trauma. But if you're looking at it from the other end, you know, the... Uh, someone coming at this might say, well, hey, someone that's an enforcer may have some more intrinsic uh, like personality traits or like a danger gene that may lead them down this path anyway. And, you know, frankly, we need to keep studying this um, to, you know, understand the real cause and effect. This is at this point more of a, you know, an association that we're noticing, but uh, it is certainly a disturbing trend. Right. So... When yeah, I mean, again, we, you know, when we think of enforcers, I know there's some players probably that come to mind for people, but how do you go about creating you know, different groups to, to compare here and, and classifying players then as quote-unquote enforcers for the purpose of this kind of research? No, that's a great question. So we looked at it two different ways. One, there were 331 NHL players that have had more than 50 career fights, and that was sort of our enforcer group one, and then we had matched controls for the same year that they were born, height, weight, position, and then years in the league. And then we had a second group that we looked at that we also thought of as enforcers that maybe they just didn't last long enough to get to 50 fights. So we used as a uh, proxy for that someone that had more than three penalty minutes a game on average, which means that they were fighting probably once every other uh, game. That was our second sort of uh, enforcer group, and then we had controls just like we did for the first group. Okay, and so when we look at now the the results of this, so there weren't necessarily more deaths in in that enforcers group, but we're talking about early death, age of death. Correct. Yeah, there was like no difference really in uh, overall mortality rate between any of the four groups uh, that we looked at. And one of the other disturbing trends that you could say is that even within our control group, uh, the players were dying at a younger age, you know, 55 and 57 in those two groups, whereas, you know, the average Canadian male now lives to be over 80 years old. Yeah, I mean, even those numbers are, are shocking. Uh, so w- what do we see then in terms of, of cause of death that, that might point us in a certain direction? Well, I mean, I think one of the things we were looking at specifically is types of death that were more closely associated with uh, CTE. I'm sorry. Are we good? Yeah. No, continue. Yeah. Oh, um, such as suicide, drug overdose, uh, risky motor vehicle crashes, things like that. Mm -hmm. So as you say, we've kind of got a correlation established here, but in terms then of of further establishing a a cause and effect, where where do we go from here? What else can, can we learn or how do we need to learn it? 
Well, I'm, I hopefully we're just scratching the surface here and do a, uh, a little bit of a deeper dive. Uh, hopefully we can partner with the uh, NHL Players Association and have a look at more of the day-to-day things that may be dealing with these uh, athletes after their career, like anxiety, depression, uh, things like that. And, and we've seen instances where athletes, you know, have agreed to donate to their brains to science to, to help better understand yeah. you know, the impact of this, um, because CTE is something that, you know, certain things might point to CTE, but it's not really until after death that, you know, there's the possibility, I guess, of getting that true diagnosis. So is that something we need to better understand, you know, whether these, these athletes are suffering from that and to what extent? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of concussion and neurology researchers that are looking um, to, like, how to identify things like CTE when someone's alive, and that's being grouped as something that we call, like, traumatic encephalopathy syndrome, and that's, that's still being worked out. So in the meantime, you know, for the game of hockey itself, as I mentioned in the introduction, there, there's less in the way of fighting than there once was. You don't see teams, you know, with the same kinds of, you know, fight every night kind of enforcers maybe that the game once had but is is fighting still there is is it something that the nhl or hockey in general needs to to get rid of i mean i think there should be a healthy debate about it i'd like to see the nhl fall in line with the rest of the major professional leagues in north america and really internationally in in hockey uh and make fighting a game misconduct penalty yeah, as I say, we do see less of it. So, do, do you get the sense, though, that you know, even absent that, that that there is a positive trend? I think the NHL should be commended on a lot of the rule changes. I think the instigator rule, while very controversial, had its desired uh, effect of lowering fighting. And then I think after the lockout, there was a real emphasis in the game on you know skill uh, and puck creation and goal scoring and that really opened up the game where it was more about liability to you know carry someone who's uh just a full-time enforcer so yeah i mean the in the mid 80s like in the oilers heyday uh you know there was a average fights in the nhl was like 1.2 to 1.3 a game and now it's less than one in every five so a good trend like that's going in the right direction it really is well believe it there dr popkin thanks so much for your insight and all of this and appreciate you making some time for us here today Thanks for having me on. All the best. Uh, this is Dr. Charles Popkin has mentioned Columbia University with the Center for Shoulder, Elbow, and Sports Medicine. He's a team doctor with Team USA. Speaking to us from Finland, where the World Hockey Championships are about to get underway. So someone with a real connection to the game and wants to see it thrive, wants to see these athletes thrive. Hockey's going to be, uh, you know, it's a combat or a contact sport, rather. Uh, and, and so there are going to be injuries. But it, it, it's important to understand the, the toll that this can take. And so, yeah, maybe it's not a coincidence that we've seen these uh, horrible, tragic outcomes. Players like, I mean, Derek Bugard comes to mind. Bob Probert. You know, guys who basically made a career fighting in hockey. And through their career had dozens upon dozens upon dozens of fights. And what kind of a toll does that take on these athletes? And why do they seem to be dying at a younger age than their other NHL counterparts? Is it head injuries resulting from fighting? Is it something else? As he said, maybe it takes a certain kind of individual to want to be in that role in the first place. And maybe that speaks to uh, certain risk factors for addiction or, or suicide or anything else. You know, the stress of all of that or the other injuries that can come along with it, you know, breaking your hand multiple times. 
You know, does that can that lead to a dependence on, on painkillers? Those sorts of questions. So, you know, there's a correlation here, but there's a need to better understand the causation. But uh, yeah, these these are troubling findings, nonetheless. <laughs> Welcome back. Well, of course, uh, as you know, the government moved this week to finally expel that Chinese diplomat who was at the center of these revelations about threats and intimidation targeting MP Michael Chong and his family. China responded by expelling a Canadian diplomat. But there's still numerous questions for the prime minister about uh, his government's handling of this whole matter. Why did it take all of this coming to light before they finally acted? Did they become aware of this when CSIS prepared this assessment, this threat assessment, back in July of 2021? Now, today the Prime Minister was asked about uh, the information CSIS gathers, what gets passed on to him, and how we explain, you know, this, this apparent gap in his knowledge or understanding of this. CSIS and our intelligence services receive massive amounts of information every day from sources and, and, and signals intelligence around the world, uh, highlighting various pieces of information that they have to classify, they have to grow through, and they are professionals at determining which information needs to be elevated, which information needs to be acted on. They've been doing this successfully for years and decades. This piece... What we did, uh, what I announced last Wednesday, is that even if a piece of information isn't particularly credible, isn't a particularly serious threat, going forward, if it involves an MP or their family, it needs to be elevated to the highest political levels. Uh, that is something uh, that we will do going forward, but CSIS makes those evaluations based on their professional experience. Okay, so a bit of a muddled response still. And as we know, look, the Prime Minister had said initially that this assessment didn't leave CSIS, but we now know that it did. This is kind of a microcosm, I think, of the uh, government's entire response to these revelations about Chinese interference. Uh, you know, confusion, ineptitude, spin, not a lot of decisive action. What does it tell us about, you know, the China file more broadly speaking? Our next guest uh, writes today in the hub on how when it just as it is, it appeared as though maybe the government was moving in the direction of getting more serious on the China file. These recent developments uh, do indeed suggest otherwise more at the hub.ca. Sean Spear is editor in large uh, at the hub and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Sean, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, thanks, Rob. It's always great to join you. Uh, so it's interesting. And so you, you take the approach that, you know, this has kind of proven you wrong, that, you know, there was a point maybe late last year where things did seem to be trending in the right direction, maybe an inclination to give the government a bit of the benefit of the doubt here. But what, what's changed in your mind? Well, it's worth remembering, Rob, that uh, the Trudeau government came to office in 2015 with big ambitions about increasing our economic relationship with China. There was talk, you recall, about free trade negotiations even. Um, and yet, as most of the world started to revisit its basic assumptions about China's actions as an economic and geopolitical power, the Trudeau government was, uh, was moved slower. Um, uh, and yet, late last year, in a, what they described as the Indo-Pacific strategy, the government, to its credit, used language to describe Canada's relationship with China that not only have we not seen out of this particular government, but the truth is we hadn't seen out of any government, probably dating back to the prime minister's own father. It represented, at least uh, in words, uh, a, a 
a rethinking of Canada's relationship with China. And at the time, I described it as the most important policy development of the year, precisely for that reason. Um, and yet, what we've seen over the past several weeks, including this week, where it took the Trudeau government more than seven days from the time that we had credible evidence that a, a Chinese official located here in Canada had targeted a member of parliament um, um, before it, it took action to expel the diplomat. It, all of this, it seems to me, signaled a, a gulf between the, the words reflected in this uh, late 2022 Indo-Pacific strategy and what we're seeing from the Trudeau government. So I guess in sum, there, there seems to be uh, some delay in bringing expression to this more hawkish set of, of um, ideas and arguments in the Indo-Pacific strategy and, and how the government actually is um, um, in policy terms responding to a, a changing geopolitical context vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. Right. So does it suggest that something may have changed, you know, from the end of last year to, to spring of this year? Or what does it tell us maybe about just how, how perhaps empty those words were back then? Well, this is conjecture, of course. Um, but it, I can't help but think that it reflects, at least in part, uh, Rob, something of a gulf between some members of the Trudeau cabinet, I'm thinking, for instance, of the industry minister, Champagne, who's spoken about the need for decoupling, who's used his powers to actually force Chinese firms to divest uh, in Canadian uh, assets, particularly mining ones. Uh, Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland, who similarly uh, in speeches in Washington and elsewhere has spoken um, in pretty hawkish terms. Um, and the prime minister himself, um, uh, who, you know, it just feels like it hasn't quite bought into this kind of reconceptualized view about uh, about Canada's relationship with China. That would be my that would be my conjecture. But I'll, I'll just end here by saying um, it's not without its consequences. You know, it it remains the fact, as listeners probably know, that Canada is on the outside looking in of a major defense agreement between Australia, the U.S., and the U.K. Mm -hmm. Uh, there is something called the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework involving 12 countries that are designed to effectively organize something of an of a economic and trade arrangement, excluding China, that Canada hasn't been asked to participate in. So whatever it is explaining this gulf between words and actions, it's not just me observing it. It's our, it's our allies around the, the world. And, and I think the, the, the government's response to the interference uh, scandal in recent days, it will have done nothing. Um, to reassure those allies that we are actually in, in action, prepared to take uh, a, a tougher line. Yeah, and it's an interesting point you raise because, you know, there's been talk about consequences in recent days, but very limited and very narrow talk. Like the reason why the government took so long to expel this diplomat, we're told, is that they were worried about consequences from China, what kind of economic fallout there might be or what China might do in retaliation. But if we want to talk about consequences, you know, the, the emboldening of China, the alienation of our allies, those seem like much more significant consequences that the, the government's not really paying attention to. I think that's right. Um, there's a great report out just yesterday, uh, Rob, co-authored by Vincent Rigby, who incidentally was a national security advisor almost in the time frame in which we're discussing these thesis materials coming up through the system. Um, published by something called the Center uh, for uh, Strategic Studies based in Washington, in which he says, uh, which him and his co-authors say something to the effect of Canada's glacial response to these changing geopolitical dynamics, particularly with respect to China, 
has been noticed by our allies um, and has left us something isolated, sort of on uh, uh, not at the table on some of these big discussions that are going on about how we manage trade in a world in which China is increasingly uh, aggressive, how we think about security issues, cyber and, and conventional security. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's an understated part of the equation, that when we focus um, primarily or solely on the, the potential economic ramifications of a, a tougher line on China, we don't account for the fact that it comes with a whole host of other um, benefits or costs uh, in, involving our more traditional allies. So what does that leave you on the pessimism scale as to whether there's going to be any kind of meaningful change with regard to the, to the government and its uh, its approach, its policy toward China? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, I would have said last year that the Indo-Pacific signaled not just that the Trudeau government itself was changing, Rob, but that Canada's political class had gone through something of an evolution on China. And that evolution uh, isn't limited to Canada. You know, for all of the talk of, um, of polarization in the U.S. and dysfunction in Washington, there is one major thing that Democrats and Republicans increasingly agree on, which is that we made some mistakes uh, in believing that more trade with China would lead to better relations and democracy and all the rest. And we're seeing um, continuity between Donald Trump and Joe Biden on a more hawkish line in China. And I would have, as I said, I would have thought that that's where we were headed late last year. It seems to me, though, that as long as the Trudeau government is indecisive and unsure about how it thinks about China, um, the Conservative Party uh, uh, will have this issue as something of a differentiator or a distinction. And, and, you know, my sense is, especially after the two Michaels issue, the fact that China has continued to be uh, a bit um, disingenuous and, and ambiguous about the origins of COVID, I, I get the sense that actually Canadians would be responsive. Uh, to an opposition party that distinguishes itself uh, as more hawkish and more realistic when it comes to Canada's relationship with China. Yeah, definitely feels like it right now. Uh, we'll leave it there, Sean. Much more as mentioned at thehub.ca. Thanks, Thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. There you go. That's uh, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub, thehub.ca. His piece today, the Trudeau government's response to Chinese interference has proven me wrong, he says. Uh, that he was of the opinion that things really were starting to change late last year. And this is around the release of the government's Indo-Pacific strategy, which seemed a lot more hawkish. But as we've seen in, in recent weeks with all of these revelations, maybe that was just mere rhetoric. But let's continue talking about the Albert election campaign and what this campaign is about where the political parties are choosing to focus their message and how they're choosing to f focus and shape their message. It's an interesting pivot for Danielle Smith because uh, she's got a political track record. And of course, she just ran a leadership campaign last year, a campaign then that had a much different tone from the kind of campaign they're running now. It is interesting because you wouldn't think that the UCP and NDP would be fighting over the same voters, but it kind of feels like they are. You know, last week we saw uh, Daniel Smith and her pitch to blue-collar voters who maybe have voted NDP in the past. Rachel Notley offered her pitch to conservatives who maybe haven't voted NDP in the past. We've certainly seen the parties, I think, move more toward the middle. And that includes Daniel Smith, who last year really ran as a much more kind of right-wing or conservative candidate. Now, just recently, you know, the UCP and Smith herself made it clear 
that some of these issues that were front and center in her campaign last year are not going to be a part of this campaign at all. You know, not just the issues around, you know, changing the uh, human rights legislation to to include vaccination status. I mean, she's already said she's not doing that. But other things like the, you know, the Sovereignty Act or an Alberta provincial police force or an Alberta pension plan. It was surprising to see those issues uh, removed from, well, not necessarily removed altogether, I guess. I mean, it's possible they'll come back to them at some point, but that those are not going to be issues that are going to be a part of the campaign or the platform. So our next guest notes uh, an important shift here. Uh, As the headline of his piece says, Daniel Smith is choosing soccer moms over separatists. What are the benefits and the risks of that strategy? By moving more toward the middle, is Daniel Smith risking the alienation of part of that base that that did carry her to victory in that leadership race? Uh, Rahim Mohammed is a a Calgary-based political columnist and commentator. His piece is up at uh, nationalpost.com. Rahim, good to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Good to be here, Rob. Congrats on the jump over to FM. Well, appreciate you being with us. Yes, it's uh, it's been an interesting shift for sure. Let's talk about this this shift here, uh, the political shift we're seeing from Daniel Smith, the leadership candidate, and Daniel Smith, the incumbent premier, campaigning for re-election. How big a change are you seeing here? Sure. Um, so I think it's it's normal to see candidates run a different campaign in the general election. You know, then they do in a nomination campaign. Um, but I think two things are anomalous with Daniel Smith. First of all, um, the leadership vote for the UCP took place just seven months ago. It's fresh in our memories. Um, and second of all, she ran, even by the standards of the party, a quite insurgent campaign, I would say cozying up with some fringe elements. You know, People like the Free Alberta strategy, people like Take Back Alberta, people that might have cachet in UCP circles, but their opinions probably don't align very well with your median Calgary area swing voter. Mm-hmm. Right. And those are the voters that, that definitely matter, maybe matter the most in this campaign. Yeah. I mean, I would say the math is very clear. So Jason Kenney got Danielle Smith a good amount of cushion in Calgary. So I believe he won 23 of 26 seats last time around. Um, there have been a few resignations, um, a few MLAs on the UCP side. Um, saying that they're not going to stand for office this time around. Right. Um, and we could expect the UCP to have some cushion in downtown Calgary. And indeed, I think they'll lose a number of seats in downtown Calgary. But the suburbs are going to be critical, um, particularly in the northern reaches of the city. Um, so districts like Calgary Northwest, Calgary North, Calgary Foothill. And of course, um, you know, the ubiquitous soccer mom um, is going to be a very influential archetype for both parties to try to cater to and appeal to and mobilize it's interesting because you look at those to whom you know the idea of the sovereignty act appeals or the provincial pension plan appeals like i think those are ucp voters anyway Uh, the ucp has the advantage that there's really not much of any kind of an organized alternative further to the right uh, even if they lose a bit of support in some parts of rural Alberta, they've probably still got enough of a cushion to win those seats anyway. Like, yeah. Can the UCP kind of take those those voters for granted here? Well, I mean, one thing I will say is the early wildfire season is, is a wild card. Um, thankfully, here in Calgary, um, you know, we've had a dreary few days. It's, it's you know, conditions. Um, we've seen a bit of rain, but, um, you know, you look at those parts of Alberta, um, the wildfires are going to make campaigning and get out the vote. Um, much more complicated, and also there have been a few policies 
that the UCP have enacted vis-a-vis wildfires that could potentially hurt them in parts of rural Alberta. But for the most part, I think we're talking about Calgary um, and, and in particular the, the suburban reaches of Calgary that are really going to tell the story uh, of the provincial election. How much of politics shifted, if at all, from from last year? Because, you know, the idea of standing up to Ottawa seemed to have a lot of appeal among conservative voters, not hearing a lot about it during the campaign. So it's interesting to see, you know, for example, issues like the Sovereignty Act or the Provincial Pension Plan or police force downplayed and to see Daniel Smith, you know, boasting about the child care, the $10 a day daycare agreement with the federal government. Again, is it just a case of, okay, we've got the, um, you know, the, the folks who want to stand up to Ottawa, they're already in our back pockets, so we can focus on these other issues? Or what, what does it tell you? So um, I don't know if you, you have children yourself, but um, I, I'm sure you're aware from colleagues that you know parents um, you know, with toddlers here in Calgary pay some of the highest child care fees in all of Canada. And, and you think about the $10 a day federal child care framework, you know, a year, year and a half ago, this is exactly the type of program. Uh, that Danielle Smith would have pointed to and said, you know, hey, we're ceding control over the levers of policy to Ottawa. This is why we need something like the Sovereignty Act. Um, however, it's a very, di- you know, cheap daycare um, is a very challenging thing to campaign against, you know, when you look at the demographics that are going to be critical um, to swinging this election. So you think of the soccer moms, uh, but you think of young parents in and around the suburbs of Calgary, uh, you know, cheap di- daycare is a very challenging thing to be against, um, even if you're going to have to cozy up to Trudeau and, and give some political points to Trudeau to um, uh, to get behind that that policy. That's the thing. I mean, they, they did finalize this deal. They did deliver on that. So does that matter more to voters than, you know, an op-ed that, that Smith might have written two years ago? Yeah, I mean, I think Smith has said that, um, you know, I've written a million words I've said a million words in my time as a columnist, and I think people understand that Smith the columnist is a different person than Smith the politician. Um, and frankly, she's made way more incendiary statements as a columnist than you know being against $10 a day childcare. So I think that's the least yeah. of her worries at this point. And I think um, you know she, she's running a, a pragmatic campaign that's targeting the demographics that are, are you know in Calgary uh, most likely to swing the election. It seems like right now there's there's some unity in the party in the sense that we don't want to lose to the NDP. Mm. Uh, assuming the, the UCP wins, and I think especially if it's a narrow win, what, what kind of trouble does that create for, for Daniel Smith? As you write in, in your piece, uh, Smith may come to regret giving a cold shoulder to the budding Alberta autonomist who helped resurrect her political career sh- uh, just a short time ago. So what does all of this portend post-election? Sure. Um, so we're seeing unity because there's nothing that unites a party like a common enemy, uh, a common enemy. Um, so you know you have the Alberta NDP. You have a relatively popular um, Alberta NDP leader in Rachel Notley. Um, so let's say um, Danielle Smith gets in. Um, she gets in with a somewhat diminished minority majority. Um, Notley steps aside because it's kind of her third kick at the can now. Um, so you know if you don't have that common enemy, I think you're going to see tensions flare up. Um, within a diminished UCP caucus, um, and you can get into a situation where you have a few um, kind of marginal members, the Brian Jeans of the caucus, kind of running the show, um, potentially um, under threat of you know, some sort of non-confidence. Um, you know, we're going to remove our support from from the UCP caucus, um, so it could end up with Danielle Smith walking something of a tightrope if she alienates that element over the course of the campaign or further alienates that, that element. 
Yeah, it's a delicate balancing act for sure. Uh, as mentioned, your latest up at nationalpost.com. Raheem, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All the best. Uh, there you go. It's Raheem Muhammad, uh, Calgary-based political columnist and uh, commentator. So, yeah, it's, it'll be interesting to see that, that sign of it. As he points out, even if suburban moderates are expected to swing the election, the UCP will still need boots on the ground to bring it home. Smith will have trouble keeping the UCP base energized while simultaneously running away from the very ideas that helped make her the party leader just over half a year ago. So what are we expecting uh, her to deliver as premier post-election, assuming she wins re-election? So is there still the potential that, you know, there, there could be that splinter within the party? That certain factions are going to say, look, we, we don't want this or we expected this and we didn't get it. And then the other dilemma, too, is, you know, if, if you're going to de-emphasize these issues in a campaign and not talk about them, what kind of a mandate do you have to act on any of this stuff after the election? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.